The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I think there is a powerful opportunity for like activists and organizers to find a deeper language to talk about the experiences that we're going through. And so kind of this book and my life so far has just been like, how do I live this in my 20s? How do I navigate this? How do I navigate the fear and mortality and stigma that comes with um, fighting and advocating for these issues? And in many ways, I do revere Baldwin, but I also want to go beyond some of his conceptions of of change or gender or sexuality, because I do think he was very restrictive in some of the more misogynistic language he used to kind of get things across to audiences that weren't necessarily like him. And I kind of want to push past that and push past the kind of like just notion of bearing witness, because I also think it's our job to kind of figure out in what ways we're complicit to the social systems around us. Welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning queer Jamaican-American writer, videographer, activist, and debut memoirist, Prince Shakur talked to me about James Baldwin's legacy, writing towards his father's murder, and his latest, When They Tell You To Be Good. Shakur is a freelance journalist, video maker, and New York Times recognized organizer whose debut memoir, When They Tell You To Be Good, is about his political coming of age in Obama and Trump's America. It's a pal's holiday pick for 2022 and a time Poets and Writers publishes weekly Them, The Week, Day Beautiful, and Book Riot's Best Book of Fall. Described as an exploration of his radicalization and self-realization through examinations of place, childhood, queer identity, and a history of uprisings, the memoir won the Hurston Wright Crossover Award and has earned him residencies with Sangam House, Le Maison Baldwin, the studios of Key West, and Atlantic Center for the Arts. As a freelance journalist, Shakur has penned numerous op-eds, essays, and features in Teen Vogue, Daily Dot, Coda Story, Cultured Magazine, Afropunk, and more. His writings have been used in university classrooms, including Nikita Oliver's Prison Abolition Course, offered at the University of Washington. In this file, Prince and I discussed how he struggled as a young freelance journalist, the black queer activist experience, why he feels the need to push past the notion of bearing witness, what it's like to navigate anti-blackness abroad, the urgency of artwork in the face of death, why artist residencies and grants are so important for writers, and a lot more. 
stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are rolling on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by award-winning debut memoirist and author, Prince Shakur is hanging out with us. How are you feeling today? I'm good. I'm good. Um, as I mentioned before, um, I'm new to New York City, so I've just kind of been adjusting and meeting up with people and kind of, yeah, just finding my balance so far when I can. But um, I'm good today. I'm hydrated and I got enough sleep, so that's a good start. <laughs> Always a good start. Are you drinking some coffee or some tea? Um, I'm just drinking water right now because I don't. I haven't bought any coffee yet. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> wow, you really are new to New York City. Um, well, t- tell us, if you can, like, what prompted the move to uh, the Big Apple and, and where you hail from? Yeah, I mean, I have lived in Columbus for the past four years. I grew up in Ohio. I grew up in Cleveland. And for me, I'm a big person where if an idea comes to me, I want to prove to myself that it's possible. And just like a lot of things that I've written about in this book that I wanted to prove to myself was possible... I wanted to move to New York and kind of live whatever this version of my life could be here and to make it here, to sustain myself, to find community, to organize. Um, And also, um, it's just way more diverse than Columbus, Ohio. So I'm hoping to be out here meeting people and having fun with other queer people. So a lot of those reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can't wait to um, kind of follow along. I know you're on uh, Instagram and Twitter, of course, your home base there is PrinceShakur.com. But yeah, I want to talk about the debut memoir and the attention that's received and, and kind of its uh, the seeds of uh, its genesis. But take us back a little bit because you've been you've had your fingers in a lot of different things. You've been you know hailed as a um, an activist and an organizer and a, a journalist, and of course. Um, some filmmaking as well, but take us back a little bit and kind of give us the uh, superhero origin story of how you became a hailed um, debut memoirist and kind of, uh, yeah, kind of the the ascendance, as it were, um, to where you are today. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in a Jamaican family. So this sort of immigrant experience is something that my parents made me very aware of. And I grew up going to Jamaica in a lot of my summers. I loved reading as a kid. I just really loved stories because I was so shy and kind of timid. And I think when my more difficult years started happening in middle school and high school with my sexuality and figuring out I was gay and coming out to my family and having a stepfather that was incarcerated, um, I really view that period of time as when I started to really realize the power of storytelling and the power of writing stories and how it was a way for me to experience the world in a way that I was hungering for, even at a young age. And um, from there, I went to college. I went to Ohio University. I studied creative writing. Um, and I loved the program there, but I definitely saw my writing and creative energy shift outside of class. I was going to a lot of open mic nights. I was a student in a student theater group. I 
um, I don't know. I, I, I did so much creatively outside of class. And then near the end of my university um, time, um, Michael Brown was murdered um, by police in Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, that was days before my senior year. And so pretty much my senior year was a big kind of shift in my political trajectory, understanding police violence, state violence, understanding more of the histories of of anti-Black violence, um, whether it's colonial or civil rights era or the Black power movement. Um, And so I became a huge organizer. I started doing demonstrations all around my campus. And then I graduated in 2015. And um, from there, I, I kind of view like the next year or so after college as like really transformative for me because I moved to Seattle. I tried to be a boycott organizer. I lived in Montana. I traveled like really far away abroad for the first time. I went to the Philippines and all of those experiences, I was blogging while I was doing that. So I was writing online. I was figuring out what writing meant to me as an adult. And I really view um, that era of time as really important because it really showed me how to kind of exercise these hobbies and beliefs that I had as an adult. And since then, it's just been um, hustling as a freelance journalist, working on this memoir, um, working on other projects too. Like I did a video series that won an award by GLAAD in 2017. Um, I've been a part of all sorts of different political campaigns and kind of efforts. Um, And now I'm shifting into being an author, which has been my dream (laughs) since I was 12. So is that a good overview? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all it's all very inspiring, and it sounds like your latest uh, "A Labor of Love" um, kind of delves into the to the roots of, um, as you describe it, kind of your self realization as an organizer, as an activist, and of course, delving into some of these issues. And and you've been compared, you know, kind of to James Baldwin, and he he you know in his writing and there was a, a political there was a political and social activist piece there right that you kind of embody talk about that comparison and and of course you quote baldwin in your book a, a really important quote talk a little bit about the importance of baldwin during that period but not only um that but kind of the history of the um social justice piece yeah yeah um I mean, for me, Baldwin became a really huge figure for me in college. I never learned about him in high school, and I actually learned about him in an African-American literature course I took that was taught by a white professor. And that doesn't mean that it was inherently bad or there was some like huge dissonance. I just speak that into existence because I think it just shows how so many Black people come to literature and literary figures that could have meant a lot to them sooner, but it they don't. They, they 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 don't receive they don't aren't taught about them because of homophobia or stigma or history or someone's placement in history. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, I don't know. I mean, the comparison to Baldwin to me is just kind of like I've literally kind of walked in his footsteps when I was in Seattle in 2016. I partially left to go to France because I'd read about him going to France and I watched the documentary about him, The Price of the Ticket. Um, when I was kind of falling in love for the first time after those travels. A lot of his writing, his novels, Giovanni's Room, um, so much of that book inspired me to kind of open myself up in a way that I wanted to, and in a way that I think his literature speaks to like the fear that people have about connection. And I've always kind of run away from that fear as a queer person, as someone who's had a family that 
hasn't been very understanding of his sexuality. And so for me, what he kind of represents is this kind of notion of queer displacement that I Mm. really have kind of realized is all throughout my memoir, um, kind of this feeling that you don't really belong anywhere, but you can sort of negotiate and find home wherever you go. And home is also still within you. And in terms of the social kind of justice aspect, like as a Black queer person who is very deeply an organizer in a way that I don't necessarily see a lot of Black writers talk about. Like I do understand and advocate for the kind of art activism space, but I also do think there is a real power in having grassroots organizing experience, campaign experience, knowing how to organize demonstrations, knowing how to kind of navigate and be in political spaces with other politically minded people that are using theory or experimentation to change the conditions around them. Like, I think there is a powerful opportunity for like activists and organizers to find a deeper language to talk about the experiences that we're going through. And so kind of this book and my life so far has just been like, how do I live this in my twenties? How do I navigate this? How do I navigate the fear and mortality and stigma that comes with um, fighting and advocating for these issues. And in in many ways, I do revere Baldwin, but I also want to go beyond some of his conceptions of, of change or gender or sexuality, because I do think he was very restrictive in some of the more misogynistic language he used to kind of get things across to audiences that weren't necessarily like him. And I kind of want to push past that and push past the kind of like just notion of bearing witness because I also think it's our job to kind of figure out in what ways we're complicit to the social systems around us. And I think for me, the social justice and organizing aspect of my life is kind of addressing what I feel can be some of the complicity that some writers or artists have by only operating on a social justice level in the art space when I think it should happen in all other parts of your life. Yeah, and it seems that you truly embody that, and obviously the work kind of delves deeply into that. But there's also um, kind of a deep historical piece, and you're talking about some intergenerational trauma, and you know, obviously, kind of exercising some of the ghosts of of the past of your own past. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. 
Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. I will, of course, mention the book, When They Tell You To Be Good, a memoir is available. But um, yeah, uh, congrats on the work and the reception. How are you feeling about the reception? Because, you know, some of these reviews are are really stunning. Uh, Time called it searing and a deeply personal reflection that celebrates self-discovery in the face of intergenerational trauma and a violent colonial legacy. And that doesn't, you know, doesn't sum it up, obviously, but I thought Kirkus also, Kirkus reviews also, um, called it scorching and a non-linear journey through a black man's search for self. But yeah, talk, talk a little bit about the Genesis. And then, you know, as you're, as you're talking about and discussing or confronting the complexities of, um, as you put it, the Af- Afro uh, Caribbean diaspora, talk a little bit about, I don't know, it, it seems like an enormous amount of work went into this book. I'm not just self-discovery, but also there's, it seems uh, kind of a research piece and a fact-checking piece and then the memory and the memoir piece. I, you know, if you could t- tie those things together, I know I'm rambling, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for the Genesis, I, um, in 2016, I was living in Seattle. I left, I went to France, I worked in Montana, I went back to Ohio, I went to the Philippines. And, uh, and I did an interview recently where they were kind of like, why did you write this memoir when you did? And I look back at that year and I realized that, especially in Standing Rock, I was kind of confronting these deep kind of ideas I had around my mortality. And I was thinking a lot about my father and what it would mean if I were to die violently at the state's hands at a young age. And the kind of correlations and kind of parallels I, I've always kind of feared in terms of my life and his life. And so in terms of Genesis, 2016 was definitely a huge Genesis. And I spent the kind of next few years um, kind of working towards it. I went back to France in 2018. I learned of a huge family secret that is kind of a pivotal point in the memoir, learning about this uncle that I never knew that I had. Um, and, and I think the kind of external things that I was doing in my life, traveling, kind of trying to find home and navigating what home is in these different places. And then also kind of doing this deep reckoning that I felt was necessary because I'm also definitely kind of a person where I don't want a certain thing or dilemma or problem hanging over my head the rest of my life. Like I'd rather handle it in the span or chapter of time that it seems like necessary or fruitful or, it, it just demands that. And I, and I really kind of believe that. Like, I think we have to confront things in our lives in order to make sense of them in the way so that other people and their narratives don't have power over us. And so a lot of this book was kind of that. It was like me writing towards my father and his murder. It was me writing a memoir about being Black and queer and radical in ways that I hadn't really experienced before. Um, I, I've never really read a book about like a Black 
queer person kind of traveling in the ways that I describe or navigating anti-Blackness abroad. And so I really wanted to bring a lot of things to the table that felt really personal, but also kind of structural because I also tend to kind of intellectualize things and ask a lot of questions about the utilities of the social systems around us or race or even for me, like the utility of Black culture around the world, which is something I kind of questioned throughout my book. Um, And then definitely with unpacking family history and the sort of cultural aspects of Jamaica pre and post independence, it was really necessary for me to like kind of understand like, yes, I've been born into this culture as the children of, of Jamaican immigrants, but there's also a lot of learning that I wanted to do in terms of Jamaican history. And the more I learned, the more kind of beautiful and complex I saw, um, I began to see Jamaican culture as, and I began to see my family's kind of history because um, I, I literally, like, I think it was like my, my mother or my father was born the year that Jamaica achieved independence. And so as soon as I started researching these things, I kind of got to see how these political and social conditions might have crafted the island that my parents were on and what led, um, especially my mother's family, to come to the U.S. And so a lot of it, to me, was is just like a beautiful reclaiming of a culture that has sometimes pushed me out and has been very painful, but it's also a cultural space that I deeply admire and I revere and I have a lot of love for. And that love is always going to be complex. And I just wanted to kind of do my part in painting a kind of, I guess, bird's eye view of how my life connects to it. Mm. And also to not like fully speak for anyone in my family or to speak for what they did or what they went through. Like a, a lot of this is me kind of trying to apply my questions to these histories and kind of unravel something that can be a little bit more fruitful or generative in the future. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's all of those things. And mm-hmm. yeah, the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, wow, I really, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. Cause I feel like I just really want more space for queer, radical, Jamaican American or diasporic kind of writers. And I, I really hope that this book is a, is a piece of that, um, becoming more possible. Yeah. That's important. Do you feel like you're on the avant-garde of, of something bigger, uh, of a, of a larger, as you put it, kind of movement? Um, I mean, do you mean in the, 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 like the art sense, the, the, the yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's been kind of a renaissance of, of um, literature specifically um, about, you know, kind of this moment in history kind of starting, especially, you know, in 2013 and kind of the birth of Black Lives Matter. Um, but I don't know. Um, is there something, is there a bigger, yeah, I don't know. You can answer that one. <laughs> yeah, um, I appreciate that question. Um, I would say... Yes and no. Um, I think when I hear that, I'm kind of like, I immediately go to, yes, we're in a moment because not only is there like rising fascism, all of these spectacles of violence in American culture, these spectacles of Black and anti-Black and anti-Asian and anti-Black trans violence, um, like uh, just like so so many things are ravaging our earth right now, like Puerto Rico is without power, like what's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years in terms of climate change and and climate migration and and climate refugees and 
and and to me, like the topics that I talk about in this book are only going to be exacerbated by all of those political and social conditions. And so in a way I do, and maybe every generation kind of says this, you feel like you're on the precipice of collapse, but I also feel like it's something that people talk a lot about, especially with um, the kind of cyclical nature of the internet and the way that we kind of engage with even just what the past few years has rep- represented. Um, and, and, and to me, I, I do think there is a moment happening with Black people, BIPOC folks, queer folks, trans folks, um, being passing through various gatekeeping structures. But I also do see it as a sort of slippery slope because I do think it's also dependent upon these spectacles of violence that are all around us. Like, there's a reason that I started thinking about writing a memoir in 2016 at the age of 24. And it was because I had gone to Standing Rock and I saw people get brutalized and I was shot at with rubber bullets. And if I look at the past six years, that kind of extremity of violence has only continued. And so for me, the kind of moment (laughs) that I feel like is happening, and this is the nihilistic part of me, um, I, I feel like so many BIPOC people and marginalized people and oppressed people are fighting to create work because we kind of see the 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 kind of we, I don't know we literally see our mortality in front of us and around us at all times and and what does it mean to know that you could die at any moment or be killed and wh- what kind of artwork and what kind of urgency is that going to produce and I feel like Baldwin and Audre Lorde and so many other great black creative and literary icons that have come before me have felt that in very particular ways and it's driven them. And I can say for myself, it is a part of my driving force. And I, and I see it all around because it's like, you literally can't turn on the news in the U S like every week, there's some kind of spectacle of violence or some kind of huge display of corruption. And we're just meant to kind of go about things as normal. Um, And so I, I hope that whatever my work is in this moment, um, it, it it kind of speaks to that and it speaks to a lack of willingness to participate in these mainstream structures that are a part of so much of this violence. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that really comes through in the work. And and again, congrats when they tell you to be good. I remember, of course, I'll link to that and your home base there. Um, but that's very well put. Yeah, it is this concentric, these concentric circles of crises um, that seem to be bringing, especially marginalized um, communities, closer together and making the work more vibrant, right? Um, and definitely more important right now to just kind of helping people <laughs> cope with this all this crap. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think that's the job of art. <laughs> like I think art, if we're thinking on a utility level, like I think art can be used to kind of allow people to escape and to flee further away from a reality in a way that can be dismissive or art can allow people to escape and time travel and go into the past or recent experiences or memory and to kind of contend with what those things mean in order to like meet the present in a more powerful or more empathetic or more radical way. Mm. And to me, it's like, I hope that my work is in service of that kind of ladder process where it's like, I want the stuff that I produce to be really intense. I want it to make you feel something, but I also want people to leave uh, this book with a sense of like, 
okay, like this person has been able to contend with these things in a variety of ways. What are the possibilities for myself? And I think um, like art that is liberatory kind of does that. And that's kind of, to me, especially what I'm in service of and I, I hope to do. Absolutely. Um, well, I believe you are succeeding. Congrats um, on that. But yeah, talk a little bit about the kind of the writing process and how you found time in the margins to actually get pages and and talk a little bit about kind of, I don't know, I mean, you could talk about your writing process now or what, what you're working on presently, but I'd be interested to kind of, to know how, how, what your writing process looks like when you are kind of in a flow state. Yeah. Um, I, so a large part of why I moved to Columbus, it was a cheaper cost of living. And I really view that, that time there living there is really beneficial to me because I got to learn about artist residencies and artist grants and kind of even just those two things and applying to them kind of elevated my ability to kind of get my work out there and to kind of put myself in spaces where I could get time away. Um, but essentially, I've been freelance the past four years. And so ideally, I'm kind of juggling different projects, different articles, different reviews, um, different things like my newsletter or my podcast. But um, but when I'm especially in a flow state in terms of book writing, like I, I love to wake up early. I love to get my coffee and my food in and I sit down at whatever writing surface I'm using as soon as possible because it's just kind of like how I get there. Hmm. Um, and for me, it's like once I'm in that zone, like I will work until like 2 or 3 p.m. And I'm definitely a note taker. I'm a to-do list person. I definitely like to kind of have different pieces of paper or different things that help me plot or sort things out or edit. Um, um, but, for, but for this book, I mean, I, I wrote a lot of it in 2018 when I did my, or no, I wrote a lot of it in 2018. And then in 2019, I wrote probably the next like 40% of it when I did um, my first writing residency at Sangam House mm. in Bangalore, India. Um, and so I, I also just am really much a person where it's like, the incremental work is what really matters to me. So if I can write 500 pages a day and by the end of that week, that adds up to like what, 3,000 or 4,000 words, depending on if you add more or less every day. Mm-hmm. And so to me, um, it's it's all of those things, like those routines, those hobbies, the kind of back end work where you're trying to find spaces of, of for that support writers. Um, and it's definitely for me the behind the scenes work, like sitting at a desk and staring at your computer is not sexy, but <laughs> when the book comes out and you get to do interviews and people kind of see the final product, that's what they see. But I'm definitely very committed to like, how can I love the writing process? How can I love the editing process? How can I love the different parts of the process in ways that kind of enliven me and and, and challenge me to be a better writer? Um, and so definitely with editing this book, like the memoir, I learned a lot. Like I've been working on a novel the past two years, like that's also been wild editing that and kind of figuring out what my fiction brain is like hmm. um, now, as opposed to when I was a teenager. And so for me, it's always some process of ex- experimentation or putting something in a slightly different form or getting into something new um, or getting into something familiar, but in a new way, um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's exciting. we would be interested to hear more about the fiction. Can you say anything else about it or? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a novel I wrote in college, actually. And uh, I, I, I wrote it after I watched this documentary called um, We We Were Here by um, David Weissman. It's about a number of people who um, kind of survived the beginnings of the AIDS crisis in San Francisco. 
Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really close to finishing edits with my agents. It's about a young boy growing up in the deep South and he is kind of processing his older brother's death. And, um, and that comes through in a variety of forms, uh, kind of sorted romance with a boy in his town. Um, a part of it is in New York in 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's just really like, how can I put the black young perspective um, during this extremely like vital part of queer history? And, and what does it look like to have that be like a narrative about coming of age through grief? Um, and I, I love it. I, uh, I I love fiction writing. So it's it's been it's been so good for me to kind of dive into it. Um, so yeah, that's that's all I can share. Okay. Well, we'll look for that. Of course, like I said, I'll point at your home base there, princedecour.com. The book is When They Tell You to Be Good, a memoir, uh, October 4th, 2022. Congrats. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, we appreciate your words, wisdom, and come back again and wrap with us in the future if you if you have a chance. Thank you. I, I love this podcast. And so it's a joy for me to be here. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back anytime. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. And scene, I think we got it. Look at that, 10.59. Awesome, awesome. I really do. I could pick your brain all day long. I'm sorry my my questions are rambling. I just had a lot I wanted to pick your brain about. But I'm really, really enjoying the work. And man, uh, it is very, very well done. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Of course, this is my first book. And so any interview, I'm really humbled. I'm really grateful. And I, yeah, it, it's it's just exciting for me to share space and to kind of share what I can, because it's really important to challenge these social systems and try to do it in a way that, I don't know, enlightens people. And so I'm glad to have a part in that and yeah, to, to talk about it. So I, I appreciate it. Well, you deserve all the accolades and I'm going to send you on your way, but we'll be in touch very soon. Get, get some coffee. <laughs> I will. I will. Bye.